Hello, welcome to episode 44 of the Media Sport Podcast Series. I'm Brett Hutchins from Monash University in Nam, Australia. Nam being the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation for thousands of years, which we now know as Melbourne, and a place where First Nations sovereignty was never granted nor ceded. It's spring in Australia and we're already experiencing record-breaking temperatures and bushfires as we head towards the summer where, unfortunately, more of both are anticipated. This is likely to negatively impact the summer of cricket, the women's and men's A-League football and potentially the Australian Tennis Open, among other competitions and tournaments. So, in a slightly counterintuitive move, we're turning the attention of the series to winter and outdoor ice skating in North America in particular. It's a turn that coincides with the National Hockey League's 2023 NHL Global Series in Melbourne that saw the Arizona Coyotes and Los Angeles Kings face off in two pre-season games before large crowds at Rod Laver Arena. We're fortunate to be joined for this episode by Professor Robert McClemon from the Department of Geography and Environmental Studies at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Ontario in Canada. Robert's research focuses on the human dimensions of environmental change, as well as community adaptation to climatic variability and change. You can find his work and that is his collaborators in any number of journals, including Population and Environment, Climatic Change, Canadian Geographies and Nature Climate Change. Notably, Robert is also a coordinating lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's Working Group on Impacts, Vulnerability and Adaptation, and has also advised UN agencies, the World Bank and governments in Canada, the US and Europe on issues related to climate change, migration and security. He is also a former Canadian Foreign Service officer who's worked at diplomatic missions in Belgrade, Hong Kong, New Delhi, Seattle, and Vienna. We're fortunate to have him. And, you know, in addition to having this remarkable background and wide-ranging expertise, his research also examines how to foster citizen participation in environmental science, which is what we'll be discussing in this episode. Foremost among his and his collaborators' efforts in this area is a project called RinkWatch, where skating meets environmental science. RinkWatch is a citizen science research initiative that asks people who love outdoor ice skating to help environmental scientists monitor winter weather conditions and study the long-term impacts of climate change. Started in January 2013, it has seen participants from across North America submit information about skating conditions on more than 1,400 outdoor rinks and ponds dotted across Canada and the US. Information about RinkWatch can be found at rinkwatch.org, and I encourage everyone listening to check it out on their web browser of choice. Robert, congratulations on the success of RinkWatch, and thanks for joining us for the Media Sport Podcast Series. Thanks for having me on the show, Brett. I really appreciate it. So tell us, where did the idea from RinkWatch come from? And, you know, what's the story of it, how it, how it came to sort of form and, you know, roll out in this way? Sure. Well, um, I mean, the first thing you need to know, if, if your listeners are not in North America, uh, Canadians and Americans who live in the northern part of the, the U.S., we just love to skate outside in winter. And, and hockey is such a popular sport for all of us here. So it's something we learn as kids and we practice all through our through our lives. And so it's an easy way to get people talking about winter. If there's two things you can get Canadians to talk about, it's cold weather and, and hockey. 
Uh, and so what happened was a decade ago, a colleague and I were trying to figure out, we're, we're both environmental scientists, how do we make our research on climate change accessible to people who normally don't plug into science? You know, these are folks who are driving their kids to sports or, you know, who are are, are not actively engaged in reading the newspapers or anything like that. Uh, we sort of jokingly said, you know, the folks who are waiting for a coffee in, in the drive through lane at the restaurant at the fast food place, how do we make environmental science connect with them? So uh, long story short, we uh, over the Christmas holidays, 10 years ago, we, we built a website, put an interactive Google map on it and invited people who have outdoor skating rinks to pin the location of the rink on the map. And then just give us sort of daily progress reports on how the skating conditions are on their local rink. Now, in most cases, I should also mention is that people here in Canada will actually build backyard rinks, like right in the, right in their their own backyard or in the neighborhood park. And so it, it took off very quickly. As you mentioned, we had, you know, huge numbers of people join right away. And uh, so it's it started a conversation and a data collection exercise that continues to this day. It's It's fascinating. Are you, I, I take it you're a skater or hockey or former or current or ice hockey player yourself? Like what are the changes you've seen over the years if if that is in fact the case? Well, I would, I would not say I'm a very good uh, hockey player or skater, but it's something I did right from, you know, as long as I can remember as a kid. And I skated on a on a frozen creek behind my, my home growing up and uh, also at my, my local school, we had an outdoor skating rink there as well. Uh, and, you know, People my age, I'm in my 50s now, when we think back to the winters of our childhood, they were long, they were cold, they were snowy, and it seemed like we were always outside skating. And that is not the case anymore. In the part of Ontario where I live, Ontario, Canada, not too far from Toronto, we can go for weeks on end in the middle of winter without actually having freezing temperatures. And that's something that, you know, just really did not happen when I was a kid. So through this research, one of the things we've been able to show is that it's not our imaginations, that winters really were longer and colder when we were kids. And we were indeed able to skate outdoors for a much longer period in the winter than kids today can. And so I, I suppose in the next question is, of course, you know, collecting the evidence to convince people who maybe either are difficult to convince or deny this thing is happening. So how is the data for RinkWatch collected? What's the process and the technologies that make it possible? Well, in the early days, it was really simple. It was just a case of somebody would create a, uh, an account on our website on the map using their little pinned location. And then they get a simple drop down menu asking them to indicate the calendar day and simply whether or not they could skate on the rink given the temperature conditions. Just for, for, again, for listeners who don't know much about outdoor skating rinks, the critical temperature threshold is actually about minus five degrees Celsius average daily temperature. It needs to be colder than that in order to have a hard skating surface. I know that, you know, ice forms when it's zero degrees, but to have heavy, thick ice that you can skate on, it needs to be much colder for an extended period of time. We were getting that information in the early days, but we sort of bumped things up because what happens, we had a, a small group of really enthusiastic participants who wanted to do more. So what we've done is we call them our sentinels, and they have very detailed spreadsheets that they fill in for their rink each winter. And we've actually sent them little data loggers, little key fob-sized monitoring devices that they hang by the rink and which collects hourly weather data for their rink. And so we combine all that, and we can do all sorts of interesting things now that we know what the critical temperature thresholds are for for making and maintaining a skating rink, we can now hindcast and go back into past decades where we don't have data and reconstruct the skating season. 
We can also forecast into coming decades using climate models to find out where the you know where you'll be able to skate 50 years from now, given the the changes in temperatures. You indicated earlier there'd been enthusiasm for the idea, so people obviously came forward. But how did you go about growing the number of citizens to help collect the data? You know, how, I mean, it's an impressive figure at one, over one thousand four hundred. Yes, well, it was it was the popular media that really got on board with it. We sent out, you know, as universities often do, a little press release um, about the project when we first launched it back in 2013. And a newspaper in Montreal picked it up. One of their writers contacted me and said, look, this is a great story. Montrealers love to, you know, to skate outdoors and we're seeing changes. So we did a story that it was picked up by another media outlet. And within the first year, I done over 100 media interviews here in North America. And so over the, the subsequent years, I've literally been interviewed in just about every magazine, online journal, newspaper you can imagine here in North America, from the New York Times to the Ontario Farmer to Sports Illustrated and National Geographic. And, and, and reporters tell me it's an easy story to tell their readers about, you know, how it's done and what it tells us about changing climate. Yeah, and it does. It has a, and it's talking as someone who I think has ice skated twice in his life on sort of indoor rink in Sydney or Melbourne, you know, it, it, it is a really fascinating idea. Now, I'm sure there's been a range of responses. I suppose what, you know, what other sorts of responses have you had, either from, from government officials or the general public, you know, people who I'm assuming accuse, you know, trumped up data. I mean, the, these sorts of things are part of the, the media environment in which we now exist. So, you know, what other sorts of responses? Well, you raise, a, you raise a good point, although we've surprisingly had relatively little, um, you know, pushback from people questioning the science, partly because, quite frankly, the changes here in Canada, in many parts of Canada, are just so obvious that it's, it's pretty hard to argue with what you can see with your own eyes and what you can experience, you know, over the course of your own lifetime. Uh, one of the things with any citizen science project is you get a lot of enthusiasm in the early days and then very quickly participation rates drop off. And that was certainly the case with us. Sure, we've had, I, I think actually by now about probably about 1600 rinks participate, but most of them will participate for a short period of time and then they drop off and don't participate anymore. We have a, a nice core of people who keep coming back. We have some folks who've been giving us data for, for over a decade. But it's great because given the, the design, the structure of the project, even just a few days of data from one rink in the middle of nowhere that we can match to a weather station, then it gives us, again, some calibration. So it's the idea of large numbers, essentially. If we can get tens of thousands of data points, which we have, then we can tease out the relationship between uh, the climate, the weather, and our skating. And so to get back to your original question, we got some great enthusiasm from the National Hockey League itself. They've been great supporters of it. Uh, and that's helped raise our profile as well. Because, you know, it, it's sort of like, you know, the, the legend of the great hockey players in the NHL are people like Wayne Gretzky and Gordie Howe. And these are folks who learned how to skate on outdoor rinks. Uh, and so it's one of those things where the NHL almost sees itself as a custodian of the game. Uh, and so they, they take a great interest in, in our research and as a way of sort of explaining why they're concerned about, you know, minimizing their carbon footprint and trying to, to be contributors towards a, a greener economy. So, again, we don't really get a lot of pushback anymore. The, the, the impacts of, of climate change on winter here in Canada are becoming so, so starkly evident that it's, it's hard to argue. 
I'm actually really pleased to hear that um, recognition of reality is you know, on the rise. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about the sorts of people or the community that you've developed. So it states on your website, Rinkwatch has become an online community for people who love making backyard and community rinks. And so there's obviously been longer term members. There's people who are with you for a short time. So, you know, who are the sorts of people who make up or characterize the community that are, that are helping you, you know, um, come up with the findings? Great question. They are genuinely everyday ordinary people. They're typically people who have kids, uh, although not all. There's a couple of participants who they just, you know, they what they do is they go down to their local park and they're part of the team that goes and floods the ice and make sure it's in good condition. But generally speaking, they're, they're family folk. Some of them are really active in, you know, organized hockey. Others are not. They simply create the rink as sort of a little backyard meeting place for the neighborhood kids and so on. And yeah, very few people who are actively involved, like I said, in science or, or you know, what you might think of as the type of person be really keen on this sort of thing. They're not like the bird watching community, for example, who are really <laughs> avid, enthusiastic participants yeah. <laughs> in citizen science. These were our target market. These were the folks who were busy shuttling kids to practices and things like that. And I think that there are also people who, like me and like a lot of others, can can see what has changed over the course of our lifetimes and are genuinely concerned about the, the trajectory we're on. I suppose this also leads to, you know, what has been the findings or the insights that all this work's made possible, you know, compared to what maybe what you knew when you started, compared to what you know now, you know, what have you discovered? Well, we've discovered a few things. Uh, we've published, I think, three scholarly journal articles on the data itself. So one that sort of just identified what are the critical thresholds for outdoor skating. Another one that sort of went back to the 1940s and reconstructed historical uh, skating seasons. And then one that has just come out in the last 12 months here in, in 2023 that sort of projects in great detail where we'll be able to skate in the future. And from those those articles, I think we've seen a couple things. One is there's a real east-west divide here in North America. So western North America tends to have longer, colder winters. And although temperatures are creeping up, they've not yet hit the threshold where it will have a severe impact on outdoor skating for another couple decades. Whereas I'm in eastern North America, so think about places like Toronto and Montreal and, and New York, we are already seeing the impact. So in sort of the late 1990s, winter temperature threshold warmed up to the point where we can actually identify that it's having an impact on our outdoor skating. It's also having impacts on the, the ski season, the snowmobiling season and others, but we can genuinely see it. And, uh, you know, looking at the future, I think that the, the disappearance of outdoor skating from most densely populated parts of eastern North America is going to happen probably sooner than we expected, probably in the next 20 to 30 years. Most Eastern North Americans will be lucky if they get a really cold winter where they can build a rink. They won't be able to take it for granted anymore. Yeah, and it's it's sad to read. And I note the the piece you referred to about projecting forward. It's you know, and I, I commend you know recommend listeners check out you know an article in Canadian Geography titled "Future Prospects for Backyard Skating Rinks Look Bleak in a Warming Climate." And what you actually do is sort of project forward into the twenty fifties and the twenty eighties. And, you know, while you, you just spoke to, you know, a loss of, you know, social practice, culture, you also talk about that it may have some benefits in terms of communi communicating the need to act on climate change. So 
I suppose, what do things look like in the 50s and the 80s? And, and, you know, how can we use this information to sort of drive some action on climate change impacts? Yes. Well, to start with your second question first, you know, in the media, when we hear about climate change, at least here in North America, a lot of the examples that are used are things like polar bears becoming endangered, Arctic ice disappearing, glaciers disappearing, or we get, you know, examples from the South Pacific of small island states being inundated by rising sea levels. And all these things are true and they're happening and they're of great concern. But the reality is that your average person in a suburb of Toronto or a suburb of Boston in in Massachusetts is never going to see a polar bear, is never going to get to visit Tahiti or the South Pacific. And so the examples are too distant from their day-to-day experience. But this is an example where you can say, look, you know, we can prove quite conclusively that this backyard rink or this local pond that you've been skating on for years, you're not going to be able to skate on it anymore in the the relatively near future. So it's a, a tangible, visible example of how the climate's changing and of implications. Now, granted, it's, you know, in the greater scheme of things, the loss of outdoor skating is maybe a fairly minor loss compared to, you know, the people who are losing their homes, people who are, you know, losing livelihoods. But at the same time, it gives people something they can they can see with their own eyes. And so coming back to what that means, uh, 2050 is not that far over the horizon. Uh, I hope to live to see 2050. And certainly my kid will, I hope. And so the point is, the people who build these rinks, they have kids, They're looking to the kids' future, and by the time their kids become their age, it may not be possible in Toronto or Montreal or any of these large eastern cities where it's part of the cultural fabric, you won't be able to skate outside anymore, or at least, you know, maybe on the occasional winter it'll be cold enough or maybe for a couple weeks in January in a given year but not long enough to make it worth the effort. So it's a good way of, again, circling back to this idea of communicating the risks of climate change with examples that people can readily identify with. Yeah, and no, look, I, I found it really powerful and not just because it's something that's quite unique or novel to me, but, you know, we, we see in Australia, not with anywhere near the, I suppose, the precision in which Rinkwatch has gone about it, but, you know, notions of projecting forward into what a summer of cricket will look like in the 2050s or 2080s. And on the other side of that is what happens in days of 45 degrees plus and what happens to play. So thinking about other sports or other sorts of social practices, has Rinkwatch led to other citizen science initiatives elsewhere that you're aware of, or is it connected with other efforts or other sports or even other countries? I was was thinking about the situation of ice rinks in Northern Europe, for example. Well, yeah, we have indeed had people occasionally participate from places like Norway or even China. But the reality is that it's a kind of a uniquely Canadian and northern north uh, northern U.S. phenomena to go out and, you know, religiously each winter flood your backyard and watch it freeze <laughs> up. Uh, it, it's hard to explain to, to folks in other countries or other continents that we do that. It sounds kind of crazy, but we love it. There's something kind of you know, kind of Zen, the idea of standing out in freezing temperatures at midnight with a hose, you know, flooding your yard in the silence of winter night. But it really is that kind of cultural touchstone. And so, yes, there. I've worked with colleagues. Uh, I was at, the, for example, the World International University Games, the Winter Games, were held in Lake Placid, New York in January this year. And I was invited down to come speak to sports organizers, you know, ski organizers, cross-country skiing, you name it, talk about what the risks are 
for winter sports in a changing climate because the reality is a lot of these sports they depend upon a frozen surface and um, you know the, it's getting to the point where you can't always count on that in Europe you know they're having to make snow in January to stage downhill ski races on otherwise green slopes uh, there's a very famous environmentalist Bill McKibben Mm. Uh, who was at the same conference speaking again about winter and, and the loss of winter sports. There's a very famous Canadian scientist named David Suzuki, who has had a, uh, a long-running TV show here uh, in Canada, a science TV show. And, um, you know, he featured Rinkwatch, again, as a way of trying to explain to viewers about the risks. In places where we have this culture around outdoor winter sports in particular and, and skating, you know, it really is a compelling story. And look, your research ranges across a few different areas. How has Rinkwatch, you know, informed how you think about or approach other areas of your research activity or have, you know, they remained relatively discreet? That's a wonderful question. I mean, my my sort of, you know, my big picture research is on climate-related migration and displacement. And so, you know, the, the phenomena of, of climate refugees, people having to leave small island states or being pushed by droughts out of rural areas of East and West Africa, um, even here in North America, the implications of extreme storm events and droughts for, for population displacement. And it may seem very disconnected from what I do with Rinkwatch, but actually I find Rinkwatch has provided me with a way to practice my communication skills. Uh, a way to make my other research, which on a, I think, a, you know, in the bigger scheme of things is more significant in terms of, you know, trying to understand the, the, the grave implications of climate change. I think it's made me a better communicator. And I'm always trying to look for ways to make that connection uh, beyond the scientific community to policymakers and, and again, to the folks in the drive through lines who are familiar with the general concept of climate change and global warming. And they occasionally hear these stories about, you know, refugees and displacements and, and all that, but trying to help them make some sense of it. And then also to give them a reason to start trying to do little things on their own to be part of the solution in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So, yeah, I, that's a long way of saying. I think that it's made me a better communicator. What's the future of Rinkwatch at this moment in time in your mind? Is it just continues on in its current form, or is it you know how are you thinking about the next few years for it? That's a great question. We're in our second decade now, um, and every year I think, well, maybe we should you know we should wrap things up now because in one sense we've collected so much data, we're pretty confident now in terms of you know, what we're seeing with the data, but there's so much enthusiasm for people who are already participating. We provide all of our participants an annual report card. It's about 10 pages long about how their, their rink is doing and how it compares with other rinks in the network. They look forward to that. And, um, you know, the media, like, without fail, around, you know, December, New Year's, January, we start getting media calls. It continues to provide this opportunity to, to communicate. So, we have been experimenting with using different sort of data logger devices. There's a new uh, network springing up in Quebec where local communities want to start sort of like a, a network of rink-to-rink communications so that people are more actively involved in talking about how their rinks perform depending on the weather conditions. And, you know, the National Hockey League keeps uh, reminding us that it's that's important work. So we keep doing it. We don't have any particular research budget. We, we do this on a shoestring off the side of our desks, we being myself and a few students. 
Uh, but it ticks over and, and you know, we'll probably keep going for hopefully another decade at least. Well, I, I certainly hope you do. And I'm sure most of our listeners do as well. And look, a final question I ask, you know, most guests in the series, can you nominate a book you think every listener should read? Sure. And uh, I'd like to come up with some, you know, sort of obscure book that, that will, you know, suddenly <laughs> become a bestseller when people listen to the podcast. But I'm going to choose one that a lot of people might be familiar with, which is Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, The Tipping Point. And the reason why I think it's it's useful for people who are interested in climate change or the impacts of climate change is that we often, you know, hear about global warming talked about in the context of well, you know, temperatures are 1.1, 1.2 degrees Celsius warmer now than they were 150 years ago. And they'll probably be 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius warmer in another 20 or 30 years. It sounds very gradual. And yet, you know, it, it, while the rising temperature is gradual, the impacts are not gradual. Uh, and there are many tipping points in nature, uh, which Malcolm Gladwell talks about in general terms, what is a tipping point and how does it emerge? In the research I do, obviously, the freezing of water, zero degrees Celsius, that's a really critical threshold. And so uh, the difference between minus one half degree Celsius and plus one half degree Celsius is only one actual degree, but it causes a change in state. It means whether you know precipitation falls as rain or as snow, uh, whether your rink uh, is going to start melting or whether it's going to start freezing. So it's a really good reminder, I think, his book about tipping points, that it's not just this, you know, example of skating rinks, but there's lots of tipping points, lots of thresholds when we talk about climate change that once we go past them, we may not be able to go back. So anyhow, uh, and, and Malcolm Gladwell is always a great read to begin with. It's a great recommendation. Now, look, Robert, I, I just want to say thank you for your work, that of the entire team. It's always great to hear students involved, you know, in research. And also thanks for taking the time to share your, your insights and knowledge with us. Absolutely a pleasure to be on the podcast. Thanks so much.